The following podcast contains language that some people describe as unsavory, but the first definition of savory is belonging to the category that is salty or spicy rather than sweet. So I guess we use unsavory language because it's so damn savory. Hello and welcome to episode 296 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today on the show, we had an interview with a demon student, former New York City student, John Yin. Um, John Yin Chong. John Yin Chong. Sorry, thank you for coming on the show. It was a good interview. He is currently, I think, still right at the Harvard's Federal Tax Clinic. He's a paralegal at the Harvard Law School Federal Tax Clinic, which is awesome. I mean, he's a he's a it's kind of got to be weird. He's a paralegal for law students, but they're pretty badass law students in a pretty badass place. And he's um, working on federal income tax issues at Harvard Law School. He's also got a whole bunch of volunteer experience uh, with low income um, tax folks. Yeah. Then we talked about reading comprehension and how Nathan claims all the questions are must be true questions. We'll dive into that. Um, we then hit the mailbag. We had things. A dog that loves Ben. Yeah, a dog, <laughs> Copper, that loves me. Oh, that's great. Um, and some other, yeah, the typical stuff. whole bunch of other Don't questions in the mailbag. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Uh, let's see here really quick. So this will air on Monday, May 3rd. The August LSAT registration opens sometime in the next couple weeks in mid-May. On the website, it said mid-May. Oh, that's what it literally said. Okay, cool. Yes. Mid-May. <laughs> August LSAT registration opens, quote, mid-May. Um, so I don't know why. All right. <laughs> Someone doesn't know. They, they know exactly when the cycle is going to start, which is incorrect, time to start it, but they don't know when their registration for that test is going to start. Just bizarre. Yeah. It was crazy because last they opened up a whole bunch of registration, like all the registrations, remember for, for 2021 LSATs or for the first half of 2021, they opened them all up like way in advance, but not the August sleep at the wheel. Right. They're like, Oh, we took care of that a long time ago. And now they're like, Oh, we got to do that again. Uh, They're like scrambling all of a sudden. Yeah. I I don't get it (laughs) anyway. Okay. So the August LSAT will be Saturday, August 14th. Obviously there will probably be some days around that as well, given the online format. Um, your June LSAT study group. Sorry, I'm just dropping the word flex because I, I don't see the point in calling it a flex. But the June <laughs> yeah, LSAT agree. study group is now open. Anyone with a demon free account can join your class Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Just register at, LSAT it's my, at LSATdemon.com. Yeah, LSATdemon.com. It's my favorite class that I'm teaching these days, Ben. Um, oh, okay. I, I yeah, don't, come? I, it's something about it. I don't know why it's a recurring group. Uh, you register for it once and then you're registered all the way up through the June LSAT. Um, the advice that I give will, you know, kind of be focused on people who are working toward the June test. Um, it's a vibrant community of people who are all working toward this same goal and I don't know what it is, but that class just has a really cool vibe and it's totally free for anybody who has an LSAT demon account. 
Um, I know I'm not for everybody, but uh, if you would like to come get yelled at um, by a well-meaning and kind of extra LSAT professional on Thursday evenings, uh, yeah, you just need a free LSAT Demon account. Sign up at LSATdemon.com and I'll see you on Thursday afternoon or evening. Yeah. All right. Let's go to John Yin. Today on the show, we have John Yin Chung, and you're a former listener, but you're going to have to introduce yourself to all our listeners and to me again, because I'm just getting caught up to speed here. Listener and student, Ben. Oh, student. Didn't you take one of our live classes, John Yin? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Where was that? In New York? New York in 2019, I think. I remember Ben trying to hawk an iPad. And then I, I believe I sent you a message on LinkedIn afterwards with a site for uh, if there were no takers, you could drop it off there. Wow. Oh, yeah. I do vaguely remember this. We had bought a bunch of iPads when the digital LSAT first came out. And I think we ended up realizing we didn't need them as much as we thought we did. So then I was trying to get rid of them so that they weren't just wasted pieces <laughs> of garbage. I actually have two on my desk right here still from that time. My kids. I bet the LSAC is trying to do that similar same thing these days yeah (laughs) in a much larger scale since they bought like ten thousand of them or whatever it was uh, to do the in-person briefly (laughs) in-person digital LSAT well John Yin I'm sorry I didn't remember that interaction until right now but you you are dressed up in a suit you are ready to go I mean you're gonna put us to shame on some level um tell us a little bit about your background. So that was all the way back in 2019. What, yeah, what's, what are the key highlights? Oh boy. So I, I guess I'll back out even further. Uh, hopefully won't, won't bore yeah. any listeners. Um, graduated from Cornell in 2017 with a undergraduate degree in applied economics and management. Got a master's the next year in uh, management with accounting concentration, joined Ernst & Young, uh, another Ernst & Young alumni, uh, like your friend Nikki, a couple weeks back. Uh, did that for a year, then worked uh, in more public interest work in end of 19 into 2020, and joined the Federal Tax Clinic of Harvard Law School as an intern in uh, April 2020 at the onset uh, the real onset of the pandemic, uh, when things really started to come to a head, and then was uh, hired um, as a paralegal at HLS, and that's been going on since uh, September, since the fall. Okay, and and then you started studying for the LSAT in 2019, or before that, before you? When, when oh yeah, 19, 19, and my first take was I think in November 19. I've taken it five times. Uh, it's it been times. it's been a journey. Good. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that journey. Where'd you start? Diagnostic, uh, yeah. 149, I think, cold. So start out very low. Um, started doing a lot of, I, I don't know, I approached this test a little, a little weird, I think, in that I, because my diagnostic was so low, I felt like I really needed to get a handle on each section to sort of build confidence. So I grinded out uh, Nathan's L- uh, Logic Games books uh, for a while, got good at L- LG, then got good at LR, finally at the end got good at reading comp through Kalen. Kalen is incredible. Shout out to Kalen. Uh, changed my life. But um, 
Kaylin's one of our tutors at lsatdemon.com. How long did you work with Kaylin and like how regularly, how, how did that tutoring relationship work out? Once a week for about two months. And uh, just to give a little background before I worked with Kaylin, I'd taken the test four times. I went from a cancellation to 162 to 172 to back down to 166. And then on the February LSAT, Kaylin got me to a 178. Whoa. Amazing. Wait, and that was February or what LSAT was that? February. Yeah, February that was February of this year. Yes. Okay. That's And then, so what's your plan? Your plan is to, you've already applied, but you're going to withdraw or you haven't applied yet? I've applied. Applied to 10 schools. I okay. was waitlisted or rejected at nine out of the 10. And then okay. for the one that accepted me, which I uh, really do like, am considering, they offered me unconditional full ride for all three years. Okay. So thinking of- oh, So you're sitting on that offer while also looking at those waitlists. Yeah, that's interesting. Except the the problem, of course, John Yen, is that you applied before that 178 and you got a bunch of denials before that 178 even came in. And this was the most competitive law school admission cycle ever, as far as we know. And so you've got one, sounds like pretty good offer, a full ride at a school that you like, but you have no idea what all those other all the other offers will look like if you apply at the beginning of the next cycle with your 178 which you're primed to do which is only what is that 5 months from now yeah not even yeah and so it's like i know that you're itching probably to pull the trigger on that one offer that you have but boy, I would love to see what kinds of offers you would get if you just hold off for a few more months. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Like, what are you giving up, right? That's always the question, the opportunity cost. But um, also, it's interesting to me that you took the test in February. That's when you got your 178. It is now April, and there hasn't been any movement on any of those waitlisted schools? Seven of my offers were already in by then. I applied relatively early i guess in the cycle so late october through november um were my applications so i already got a bunch of decisions back so only three schools had access to that new score or before i guess were pending the applications were pending um wait when you say you got a decision back oh so they said no they a lot i'm a big splitter not as big as some of the ones you've talked about on the show recently but i have a 3.07 lsac gpa so very, okay. very low. Um, sure. Had a lot of difficulties uh, starting school in back in 09. So this is my undergraduate degree. I wasn't in school this entire time, but it spans from 09 to 17. So my transcript's a little bit messy, and um, I have this really, really big split. So I think people uh, made a lot of decisions on me pretty quickly, which is understandable, right? It's numbers game, and I can empathize. Um, sure. with the schools so and they were yeah but that i mean you're go ahead sorry oh just the the difference between a splitter you know you were a 172 with a 3.07 now you're a 178 with a 3.07 and yeah the split is wider but to your benefit i mean it's not like 3.07 is a terrible gpa and you did have 
you were you studied economics yeah so you know it's a semi-scientific degree i'm sure you had to take some math classes and some accounting and some absolutely you know stuff that a lot of poli sci slash english majors never take and so i think you know that 178 is going to be much more likely to make them kind of recognize that you had a bit of a technical background and it was a long time ago and the 178 is fresh um I just, you know, I'd put a pin in that full ride and I would expect to get that same full ride next year alongside a whole bunch of other offers that you can then compare it to. I'll be shocked if it doesn't go down that way. Um, what do you, I don't know, Ben. Yeah. I mean, John Yin, what are you leaning toward doing yourself? Maybe before we talked to you, maybe now. <laughs> oh. Um, no pressure. Because it's a full ride, because it's a school that I really like. Um, and I have a, a somewhat more personal connection with the people because I've worked with them. They have a very good tax clinic there. Yeah. Um, it's uh, I want to give it all the due consideration, but and we'll go into this a bit later. Do you, I guess you're not you you don't want to say the school, right? Oh no, I'm happy to. I'm happy to advertise for Villanova Law School and their okay. incredible federal tax clinic, Professor Christine Spidel, my boss, um, who's. Oh God, I hate sounding braggadocious, but need to need to give the people who supported me their due, right? Yeah, um, is probably the most famous low income tax clinic director in the country. My boss and mm. Chris, he edited basically a manual textbook that's sent to all the LITCs, and she's the new current editor for the next edition. So working with her for three years or two years and so would be incredible. Um, that said. I actually thought about applying last cycle, and Nathan talked me out of it. I'm, I'm tipping my hand a bit to something I'm going to say later, but uh, it's just it, not applying and doing everything that I've done this year, which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, I just I never knew any of that was possible or could happen, and next year could be even better. So I'm definitely leaning towards reapplying, but um, out yeah. of... Uh, all the professional considerations and how good of a match I feel Villanova is for me, I'm holding out a little bit, but I'd say it's a 60, 40 right now. Cool. Let's talk about low income tax. How did you, uh, how'd you get into that? All right. So in 2016, 2017 academic year, professor Beth Lyon of Cornell law school, the founder and director at the time, or I think she still is the director of the Farm Worker Legal Systems Clinic at Cornell, uh, linked up with one of my tax professors, uh, the incredible Professor John McKinley over at the Dyson School. And they got money from Engage Cornell, which is uh, a program at Cornell that provides funding for experiential education um, to do low-income tax work. Now, you might sort of be wondering, what would an immigration clinic want uh, to do tax work for. Why is that important? It turns out that tax returns can actually, and a history of filing tax returns specifically, can be a big boon for immigrants um, in uh, really tricky situations like deportation. So if you're in immigration court, you're facing deportation, and you can prove that your client um, had a history of filing tax returns, that can be um, points towards what's called good moral character. And with good moral character, you can get judicial leniency. Um, 
and this is a terrible proposition, but sometimes for some migrants, it's, the, it's a good one. You can elect to self-deport, which means you pay for your own deportation in exchange for no strikes against your immigration record. Um, and even in certain cases, uh, if you can prove 10 years of residency in the U.S. and good moral character, you may qualify for what's called cancellation of removal, which then takes you off uh, deportation proceedings and puts you on a path towards naturalization. Um, for immigrants who have already come to the U.S. and gotten status, uh, tax returns can show proof of income. Income is necessary to sponsor another relative coming into the U.S. You need to be able to show that you can take care of them. Um, also, just to go back to the cancellation of removal, you can also get residency from a history of filing tax returns. So there's a surprising amount of synergy there. There's also the fact that in the migrant community, um, they're often faced with high costs and a limited uh, number of options in terms of tax service. So there's some unscrupulous preparers who will take advantage of these people because they speak the language. These people may not have a lot of places to turn to because they lack technology, they lack language skills, and they lack transportation. So that's where the synergy comes in. And we initially had a survey, uh, Upstate New York Migrant Tax Needs Assessment Survey, surveyed 205 migrants, majority of whom were undocumented, found out there was a need for more tax service uh, targeted at that group. And that led to our funders giving us increased funding for just tax advocacy uh, carte blanche or at large. So I, during my master's year, uh, being the beneficiary of really just good timing and uh, being in the right place, got to help them build out that program at Cornell. So I started two tax service trips, one to Alaska uh, one to California. Actually, it, you might be familiar, Nathan. I went to Kern County in Bakersfield. So, oh wow, lucky you! Yeah, went to went to that area to do uh, migrant migrant uh, targeted tax, and also to learn about the uh, history, civil rights history of the farm workers' uh, rights movement. And ran two symposiums, formed a connection with a local organization doing taxes, and. Um, that's where I, I really cut my teeth, if you will, especially on the Alaska trip. Um, and this, is, this was really cool, actually. A year after I graduated, and I think the year, the year a week after I left EY, Cornell sent me to Denver uh, because as part of our farm worker, greater farm worker advocacy at the university, which the tax stuff was part of, we were up for a national award. So I was part of the four person final presentation team to compete for that award in Denver and we actually won um, for our migrant work migrant centered work so it's uh it's been quite a journey and that's how I got to the federal tax clinic uh but I'm sorry that was that was probably uh not so much what I do but a lot of background (laughs) no it's interesting Um, I'm sure people like to hear about the different ways that their interests intersect with the law, which it does in a lot of different ways. So thank you. You're still doing low income tax on a volunteer basis. And that's actually what got you into the federal tax clinic at Harvard, but you're not doing, I mean, that's not a low income tax thing. That's tell us about the federal tax clinic. Sure. So the federal tax clinic is part of Harvard law school's legal services center. Oh, I should also say, uh, I need to give a slight disclaimer at the top of this because I am representing the tax clinic. So there's a good chance 
I'm going to touch on taxes in this interview, and when I do, it'll be in a very broad sense. Nothing should be construed as tax advice from the Federal Tax Clinic of Harvard Law School. <laughs> With that out of the way, the Federal John Tax Yen, Clinic... I'm so glad you said that. We've wanted a legitimate <laughs> disclaimer on this show for years and never had it when we've all been made up, so... Thank you. You're very, very welcome. Happy happy to be the first after, I don't know, I think this will be 296, episode 296. So I'm glad, I'm glad I got to do it. All right. So the Federal Tax Clinic is part of Harvard Law School's Legal Services Center. The Legal Services Center consists of the Family Law and Domestic Violence Clinic, Predatory Lending Consumer Protection Clinic, LGBTQ+, Advocacy Clinic, Housing Law Clinics, Veterans Clinic, and of course, Federal Tax Clinic. And together, we're like a community-focused law firm. We are a community-focused law firm. So though I should say our work can and does broader change. And at the Legal Services Center, students work under attorney supervision to provide essential legal services to uh, low-income clients. Our mission is to educate law students for practice and professional service while simultaneously meeting the critical needs of the community. For listeners who may be unfamiliar with the clinical component of legal education, clinics give students the opportunity to gain hands-on experience with interviewing, counseling, and advising clients while in law school. During their time in a clinic, student attorneys advocate for and represent real people on real cases. If you've ever seen Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs, clinics are analogous to the teaching hospital type environment that's uh, sometimes portrayed on those shows. Clinical experience is optional, but at HLS, the overwhelming majority of students participate. 91% of the class of 2021 participated in at least one clinic during their time at law school. As far as what we do, um, the federal tax clinic represents low-income clients in cases of tax controversy between the client and IRS or Massachusetts Department of Revenue. That's the Massachusetts state equivalent of IRS. So here's a fact pattern for most of our clients. Generally, IRS or MADOR has sent them a letter saying that they owe some tax liability. The client's position is that they don't owe that liability or cannot pay that liability or don't really know what the letter is and want help. We have several mechanisms to shift or reduce a tax liability. We can ask IRS to look at the return again through a process called audit reconsideration. We can submit evidence like an amended return or an affidavit that supports the client's position and thereby entitles them to a lower liability or refund if the client's balance of income, expenses, assets, liabilities make it impossible for the client to pay their liability. We can try to settle with IRS through what's called an offer and compromise. A successful OIC can reduce that client's liability. If the client was married and their spouse submitted tax returns on their behalf without their knowledge or under duress and they owe a large tax liability, we can apply for innocent spouse relief so that the tax liability is shifted entirely to the party at fault. Uh, to prevent IRS from engaging in enforcement actions against our clients, we can pay, place them on currently not collectible status. Um, IRS will then not garnish their wages, right, or levy or lean on them, and uh, the interest and penalties on the associated tax liabilities will continue to run. We also help clients secure money that they might have missed out on in the past. So on the federal and Massachusetts state level, the statute of limitations for claiming a refund is three years past the filing deadline. I say usually uh, because we're in the twilight zone. Right. It's like whenever you had a tax season that ended on July 15th or a tax season that ended on May 17th. So three years past the due date for 2020 or sorry, for 2017, which was due in 2018, would have been earlier this month. 
But because the deadline's been pushed, they also pushed the statute of limitations for claiming that refund. We also mm-hmm. collaborate with other clinics uh, to generate better outcomes for cl- their clients. This semester, I've worked on immigration cases, housing cases, family law cases, exoneree cases, and referrals from the Veterans Clinic. We also provide tax guidance to organizations with local and national reach. Last Wednesday, my boss and I gave a presentation to 40 family law attorneys in Massachusetts who represent domestic abuse victims. Our presentation was on tax issues that often impact their client base. That's particularly important now um, because of the way stimulus money is being dispersed. So it's through IRS. You get it for yourself, your dependents. And um, with more additional payments coming up later this summer, for a lot of these victims of domestic abuse, there can be thousands or even over ten thousand uh, like dollars at stake, um, depending on how uh, the fact pattern works out. We also submit. Um, sorry, do you have a question? Well, I'm just thinking yeah. about all of this. I'm, I'm yeah. the question that's on my mind. I'm sorry if you yeah. already said this at the beginning, but how did how did you get this job? I'm sure uh, some people would. <laughs> Love to have a job like this. Uh, yeah, so school. I got very lucky. Um, I'll be totally honest. Uh, my the Beth Lyon, who was one of those two professors I met at Cornell, who worked uh, founder of the Farm Workers Legal Assistance Clinic. She was at Villanova Law uh, before Cornell, and she shared a wall with my current boss, Keith Fogg. So they were friends. They've known each other for years. Um, before I joined the Federal Tax Clinic, I'd done a lot of work, obviously, for Cornell. I'd also done a lot of... Um, you had done, done work for Cornell? Cornell? Cornell. You, Cornell. Yeah. Can you... Elab- what do you mean you did work for them? So I created uh, the service trips for them. So that was as... Um, a paid research assistant clinic. I was the student director of Cornell's low-income taxpayer practicum as a master's student while at Cornell. And okay. in addition to that, I also, while I was working at Ernst & Young, still kept up with the program. So I was working in uh, New York for Ernst & Young. I think we had at one point a conference, an event, low-income tax event, and uh, like I would MC that event for Cornell. I'd provide guidance on the trips I'd started um, at Cornell. So the uh, Alaska trip, which I do have to give credit to uh, my tax professor, John McKinley, he brought, he told me to reach out to the organization in Alaska because he'd seen that trip done over at Ithaca College, which is Cornell's in Ithaca. Um, and so I'd, I'd done those trips. I, By the time I joined the federal tax clinic, I had done three seasons of volunteer income tax assistance work, basically preparing tax returns for low-income people at a relatively high level. So out of the past five seasons, including this one and four of them, I've held the advanced volunteer income tax assistance to, like certification, which is basically a free certification you can get through um, Lincoln Learn, which is like IRS, basically tax teaching program. So you can learn all this stuff yourself, but that's I had a lot of background before joining HLS. And I should also say my current job is a creation of additional COVID funding. So when I left Ernst & Young, I flew to Denver next week, helped out Cornell, was working for Cornell part-time. Um, I then joined a nonprofit that I was working with full-time in New York City, 
um, Urban Upbound, they're also great people, was going to spend time with them throughout the entire tax season um, hmm. and then intern for Harvard over the summer in the tax clinic. Um, but then pandemic happened, right? And uh, no one knew what was happening. There was a point in March, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, where it's like Cornell gig, I was their engagement advisor, so helping out on service trips. You, no one's going on service trips during the pandemic. Uh, nope. Low-income tax site, my nonprofit closed in New York City. So it's like, I'm jobless. And then uh, Harvard says, oh, well, we don't even know if we're going to have a summer program. So it's like, oh, man, I left EY, my comfy, comfy job, making my <laughs> decent salary. And it's like, oh, I'm like unemployed. I have no future. But then turned out HLS decided to go remote over the summer and they need help with uh, pandemic uh, stuff because stimulus payments go through IRS, my skill set suddenly became much more valuable. So that's how I joined LHLS and I basically ran their um, help set up and administer their virtual tax preparation program. So during the pandemic, there, there are three sites or three programs where low income people can get tax done for free in the US. It's volunteer income tax assistance, tax counseling for the elderly, and ARP. All of these programs either partially or entirely closed in the middle of the tax season last year mm. where thousands of dollars were at stake because of stimulus payments. So people who mm. wouldn't be eligible for thousands are suddenly eligible for thousands and they have no free tax prep options. So Harvard steps in. I help them build out, again, going to be honest, small scale, but to the clients that we helped, big help, virtual tax prep program. And... Um, my boss liked my work enough to work me into the grant for the next year. So that's how I got this job in this position. I have a million questions and comments. <laughs> um, just let me do like a radio reset here. Um, we are with John Yin Chong, who is a student of LSAT Demon and future law school um, applicant and current paralegal at Harvard Law School um, working on low income tax. Um, John Yin, what, what was it like transitioning? You know, you started by talking about going to Alaska and going to Bakersfield and going to Denver and working with everybody face to face. Then all of a sudden the pandemic hits. How did it change your practice, uh, working with clients virtually? Oh my gosh. Oh, it was <laughs> so many problems with virtual tax prep. So we created this virtual program to help those left out, um, in the cold, basically, without any free tax prep options. And that's like, sounds like a great idea, right? But then you come to some quick realities. You realize that a lot of the clients can't send you documents virtually. Many lack technology. Some, as I mentioned before, don't speak English. Others are disabled. They might be blind or physically disabled. So I wow. came up with a solution to sort of help those clients. Uh, I put a printer in my trunk, a laptop in my back seat. And using my phone as a wireless hotspot, I sort of took remote tax prep on the road. So I moved up to Boston so I could get documents from clients in person and prepare tax returns pizza delivery style. So wow. I put myself in PPE. I met clients for documents outside of personal residences and in parking lots. Wow. They would slip documents in my rear passenger side window and place them in my trunk or place them <laughs> in my trunk. Then I would prepare I their tax returns in my back seat. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt, but that is an amazing new personal statement. If you decide to go that route, I mean, that's just such a you're solving a problem in your field, right? You, your resume clearly demonstrates this like 
progression toward becoming this baller tax attorney and that story along the way you know like most i think covid stories are pretty lame but not that one because that one is like holy shit i'm solving this giant problem and just getting right to work um i don't know what do you ben do you agree with that or oh i agree with that for sure and i i i almost you mentioned earlier and i don't know what the numbers are but you said that uh i'll be honest with you that the scope wasn't you know large or something like that. I can't remember exactly what you said. Yeah. I can see how that would be necessarily inhibited by the way in which you were solving the problem. And and I could see some people almost giving up because of that inability to reach more people. But the reality is you can only solve as many problems as you can solve in the situation that you're in. And the fact that you're out there solving that problem is a hundred times better than someone saying, well, we can't reach enough people. So I'm not going to reach anybody Right. Um, so that alone to me is impressive that you press forward and and I, it's making me think of that Matthew McConaughey movie where he's like driving around in that car and he's like a lawyer. I don't know why, but you're driving around in a <laughs> car. Yeah, it's providing it, services. It's it's small in the grand scope of eight billion people on the planet, but it's that client's entire life. I mean, yeah. we're talking about somebody who yeah. maybe gets deported exactly. if John Yin doesn't drive over there and let them put the documents through the window. I mean, I just love, boy, those details of the documents going through the window and you're all suited up in your PPE and call, you know, the pizza delivery style. I mean, I, God, you've got so much to work with there for a personal statement. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to go that way, I'm sure you could go a thousand other ways, but. Uh, that seems like a fruitful avenue to explore. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited for the rewrite. Though, I, and I should also say this was something we did last year because all the free tax sites were closed. My boss would be very mad if I didn't say this. Harvard Law School currently does not. The federal tax clinic does not process current year returns. So, if you need help with current year returns, we can't help you because a lot of those free tax sites are now operating virtually or in person partially. Yeah, if there's not a need, right? You should spend yeah. your resources where yeah. There, yeah. there is a need. Um, I would say that uh, John, and you're 30, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I just, I just, I feel like there's so much in your background and there's so much to write about in part because you've been, well, not in part, almost entirely because you've been working since you, you know, got out of school and so forth. And we have so many people who write into the show and say, well, I'm 28, I'm, I'm too old or I'm, it's getting late. I got to apply now, Oh God, you know, and I'm thinking, well, look here, you're 30. And you have so much to talk about. You're so much more ready for law school in some ways than so many other folks who are 26. And I just, yeah, just a, a shout out for people to consider your age and what that, how that's a benefit in this case, right? Absolutely. Well, I consider the different experience that John Yen has added to his resume in the ages 28, 29, 30. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's looking like a total, not just because of his LSAT score, but he's looking like a totally different applicant, even because of these anecdotes that have come up in the last couple of years that he wouldn't have had when he was 28. Sure. Absolutely. And I, I just want to say to the people who are hesitant to withdraw their apps and reapply, it's like, granted, I hit the jackpot as far as mentors and opportunities, right? But 
you don't know what could happen. Like if you, the opportunities that you may. But John Yen, I want to jump in here for one second. You hit the jackpot because you worked hard too, right? I mean, every time you talk about this, you're like, oh, I want to be completely honest. I knew this person, but you knew that. Yeah, you can know (laughs) people, but if you don't work your ass off, they're not going to, they're not going to go to bat for you. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to like uh, inflate your ego here. I'm just saying like, factually speaking, you are successful in a large part because of how you interacted with people all along the way, right? So it's it's both. You're, you're, you're benefiting from these connections, but those connections are benefiting you because of what you've done. I mean, it's impressive. Thank so, you. Anyway, Thank you. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. no. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, it's just, you, you never know what could happen to you. Um, just, I, I would have never thought in my tiny New York studio, jobless and uh, worrying about what I'm going to do in the next year, that a year later, I would have had this incredible experience. So it's just, it's, uh, we, we focus and, and I think it's good that we do this. We focus, a lot of people focus on the downside risk, but we fail to invest enough time in exploring the upside and the opportunities of taking a little more time off in addition to getting the benefits of applying early next year or maybe having a higher LSAT score next year you get a whole nother year to learn more about the world the older I get it's like and this is used so often but it's so true the more I learn that I I don't know and uh, I find new things that I want to learn right so that's the benefit of time and I think patience also patience looks professional patience is a virtue so Oh, yeah, Yeah. totally. Um, What's something new you've learned as an employee of the Federal Tax Clinic? Oh, so I'll I'll tell a story um, for this one that I I think will resonate, hopefully will resonate with people. At the start of each semester, Keith Fogg, uh, my boss, the founder and director of the tax clinic, tells um, new students uh, a case, a past case that illustrates the importance of client agency. To protect the identities of the client, I'll be anonymizing the information in this story. So let's just say at some point in time, there was a person and that person won the lottery. That individual was excited about their win, but they wanted to avoid taxes on their winnings. So they hatched a plan. They realized that their mother, who was living in a different state, um, lived in a state that didn't tax any lottery winnings. So they had their mother claim the prize and then give them the money. Now, it's true that the mother's state doesn't tax winnings on gambling income. But you know who does? The federal government. The mother didn't report the lottery winnings on her tax return, but a 1099-G form, informational (laughs) form, was issued to the IRS. They sent her a letter telling her that she'd understated her income and that they'd recalculated her return. She now owed a substantial tax liability. She reached out to my boss for help. A lot. After yeah. examining her financial status, Keith determined that she was ineligible for an IRS settlement. Um, she was by no means rich, but had enough assets to pay the liability according to IRS's offer and compromise eligibility status. However, Keith did find a way Uh, or did see a way that we could substantially reduce the tax liability. Um, We could tell IRS the truth and shift the liability over to her kid, the one who actually won the lottery. Um, But by this point, the kid had blown through the winnings. They had little to no assets and therefore actually had a good shot at an IRS settlement and a sizable tax liability 
reduction. Facing down, let's say, a high four-figure to a low six-figure tax liability, again, anonymizing the data, the mother decided that she would rather pay the liability than trouble her child with paperwork and a few meetings. Keith offered her a path that could save her thousands of dollars, and she chose instead to eat the cost out of love for her child. It's a frustrating, tragically beautiful, I think, story, and a reminder for someone in a profession that's often laser-focused on the bottom line that there are more important things in life than money. I have mixed feelings about that story, John Yin. I know. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, who is this dirtbag kid? And I really want that kid to get stuck with the taxes, not his mom. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a tough, it's a tough situation too, because, um, I mean, as a, as a, as a parent, you know, there are things that I want to do for my kids, but there are also things I know that I probably shouldn't do for them because by doing it for them, um, not letting them interact with the world or encounter it in a way that would teach them a valuable lesson. So I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not jumping up and down saying yes. I'm glad she paid for that. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about the situation. No, neither, neither am I. It's, it's a just tough situation. But it's, it's definitely something to always be aware of, right? It's like ultimately, I can, and I think because some people get very, very invested in their clients. Right. Yeah. The people who pursue this type of work, they do it out of passion. Um, uh, they get livable wage salary, especially compared to a lot of the people we're working with. But um, you're not exactly making bank. You do this out of passion. So that passion has o- always has to be tempered with um, respect for the client's agency and their unique circumstances. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thank you for sharing. Um, other questions, Nathan? Well, I, I saw a headline, um, this morning that I think we should probably talk about. Uh, I had a really good experience with the only good experience that I had in law school was, uh, with my tax professor, Heather Field at UC Hastings. Um, she was the best teacher and also the most interested in like actually teaching and connecting to students and stuff. Um, but, but tax also seems to be an extremely promising field for young lawyers to get into. Um, when people say they want to get into, Oh, I don't know. Um, entertainment law or something, I tend to be a little like, Hey, do you know what that means and how to get there? And do you have any clue what you're talking about? But when people say tax law, I, my ears perk up. I'm always like, Oh yeah, there's going to be lots of jobs there forever. And, um, it's real big business and real, you know, even at, you know, obviously there's opportunities to work in tax for low income people, um, as well as extremely high income people, which means that you can get paid as a tax lawyer. But did you guys see this headline in the times today? Biden seeks $80 billion to beef up IRS audits of high earners. Subhead, the president's American Families Plan, which he will detail this week, will be offset in part by a tax enforcement effort that administration officials believe will raise $700 billion over a decade. So this is 
you know, a reversal of the Trump administration's, like, let's just let everybody cheat on taxes as much as we possibly can, um, <laughs> to a new, oh, you know, one way that we could get money for the federal government is to not let all of these high earners get away with avoiding so many taxes. Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. John Yin, you have any thoughts about that? I think it's a good thing. And here's the reason why. In the last few years, um, I'd say last five, six, seven years, ish um there's been a push at the irs towards automation um but what automation does is it takes a person out of the chain and unfortunately allows for easy pickings for a lot of low-income clients right so low-income client makes easy simple innocent mistake on their return it's easier for them to get caught up in the IRS's um, enforcement system because there's less discretion. So instead of receiving letters and being able to talk to people, um, I shouldn't say, if you receive an IRS letter, this is very important. If you receive an IRS letter, please reach out to, especially if you're low income, to an LITC or some sort of professional and respond. Uh, don't keep your head in the sand. Um, that's where a lot of people can run into trouble. And because there's less discretion in the system, because of automation, um, I feel like low-income people have been uh, impacted in greater greater numbers than they used to be. So this is good, I think. I, I was wondering why they're, like, I was wondering why uh, the IRS was going after low-income individuals because I couldn't imagine there being that much money for them to make through an audit, but your explanation of the automation makes total sense. It's 29 cents. Yeah. When people get a W2 or a 1099, but then they don't file their taxes, it's real easy for an IRS computer to spit out that like, Hey, what's up? You owe us money and you didn't, you know, you didn't do anything. Um, but it's much harder. I mean, I would imagine it takes actual humans to comb through, five different layers of corporations that own different, you know, like you, you, it's hard. I think I would imagine programmatically, it would be hard to write a software program. That's going to really dig into somebody who has hundreds of millions of dollars and is hiding hundreds of millions of dollars in these complicated ways. It's just not, it's just not a no, not a no brainer. Oh, absolutely. So I think like actual wage earners tend is ironic, right? But I had read that before that actual wage earners tend to get audited more than people with you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, there's there's certain things that are very very easy for IRS to pick up on. One of the big ones that a lot of people don't realize is if you get credit card debt forgiven, that's taxable. So that gets included in taxable income. So that can that can trip up a lot of people. The gambling incomes. Come when do people get credit card uh, debt forgiven from like a bankruptcy or something? Um, so basically, if you don't pay your bills and yeah, the credit card company then sells the debt to a debt collector, right? So ah, I see. So you pay it off at a quarter on the dollar, but then the IRS is going <laughs> to attribute seventy-five cents of income to you. Got it. Exactly. Exactly that. So that's a very common. And that's real easy for them to like catch in mass, right? They can just like a whale come through and get a million krill like that. And even those people probably can't pay or they don't pay that much, but it is a profitable endeavor still for the IRS to like they can because that's what they're really looking for, right? Is that they have to make more money back than their budget essentially 
or at least that's what they're trying yeah, to do. Yeah, and I yeah. Yeah, so people will get letters because of that, but there are ways that um your tax liability with IRS can be reduced. So, as I mentioned uh, before, reach out to an LITC if you're in this situation, uh, if you're within the income guidelines. If you're not within the income guidelines, um, it may just be easier to pay. <laughs> so, uh, depending <laughs> um, depending on the case. You, you've said LITC a couple of times. You're talking about a low-income tax clinic, right? And that is that's correct. search for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any, and I see here you have some websites and social media stuff. Do you want to tell anybody about any of these things? Um, we'll post links to all of these, um, legal services center of Harvard law school is legal services center.org. We'll post a link to John Yen's LinkedIn page. If you want to connect, um, we've got an email at Harvard for John Yen and yeah, that, that is excellent. Hey, John Yen, have you connected to, uh, Nikki Black? No, I have not, but I enjoyed the interview. You should you should touch base with her. She's um, you know, one of my best friends. I hang out with her all the time uh, virtually cuz she's in LA and I'm in Tahoe. But um you, you should you should see if you could uh, connect with her because, you know, she does a lot of immigration law and it's something that we're going to talk about later on the show. Uh, but she does end up doing tax stuff for her immigration clients and I think my our LSAT students, so many of them that want to work in immigration would be like, oh, tax? No, 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 I'll never do that. And that's like, okay, well, then you're going to be a shitty immigration attorney because (laughs) you have these avenues that you could explore for your clients and you're not going to because you're worried about tax. Anyway, um, it's Nikki's birthday today. You should send her an email or connect to her on LinkedIn. I will. Um, She really likes hearing from podcast folks. Definitely will. You are one of them. Immediately after this. Cool. Oh, I do want to, anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to mention um, that in another multiverse, um, there's definitely a version of me who never found the Thinking LSAT podcast, and um, my life is so much richer than his. Uh, Nathan, if you hadn't discouraged me from applying to law school in 2020, I'd probably be a one L paying full tuition for the Zoom school experience. I wouldn't have interned at HLS. <laughs> um, right now, I'm doing 34 returns a week for uh, rural Alaskans, predominantly Native American rural Alaskans, and I love that work too. Um, the work I'm, I've done this past year is bigger than law school. It's probably uh, one of the best things I'll ever do in my life. So when I'm old and wrinkled, right, and sipping iced tea on my porch, it's something I'll be able to look back at with pride. Um, I wouldn't trade this last year for a full coupon code stipend and acceptance at any law school in the world. So just thank you both so much for everything that you've done for me and everything you continue to do for aspiring lawyers around the world. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know what to say. I mean, good things come to those who wait. And it's Ben and I are really fortunate to be able to just hopefully open people's eyes to you don't need to rush into any of this stuff. If you hang out and keep working on your career and keep working on your LSAT score, then like, I don't know. I just, Ben, have you ever seen any bad things happen as a result of people waiting another year? No, no. Cause the only bad thing that's happening in my mind, and this is all I'm looking out. Maybe I'm missing something here, but, 
they're starting their 40 year career one year later, right? But so many good things can happen. Uh, just like what you talked about opportunities that you didn't know existed because they weren't in your field of vision. Uh, maybe they didn't exist. LSAT score, that's just like impossible to argue with. Yeah. It's like worst case, John Yin gets to that porch one year later. But probably he's not going to get to that porch any later. He's probably going to have a much nicer porch, actually. Probably get there sooner. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably going to get there sooner <laughs> and in a nicer place. Yeah. Having done more with his career because he, you know, he ended up getting his legal career off. It was already on a on a good trajectory. But now he's going to be on a much better trajectory with no debt instead of this lifetime of debt. So and anyway, just knowing um, where you, where, where you want to go more right, with your legal career as you go into it, it's going to be so much more informed as you attend class and so forth. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. For yeah. Sure. We should be thanking you, John Yen. I mean, you, you know, it's, uh, it is the most gratifying thing that happens to us is when people, you know, when they end up following some solid advice and having good things happen to them, that's why we get up in the morning. So you're very, very welcome. Thanks. Yeah. I get up because my kids. <laughs> yeah. Other oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. Um, all right, let's wrap it up there. John Yin Chong is a paralegal at Harvard Law School and has a whole raft of low-income tax experience uh, at a variety of different places. And uh, you can find uh, ways to connect to him at thinkinglsat.com. You're very welcome. Cool. Thanks, John Yin. Absolutely. Uh, don't be a stranger. Yeah, thank you. Say hi to Nikki and uh, and reach out. All right, thanks, John Yin. Yep, talk Have to you soon. Have a good show. See ya. You're welcome. Bye. Wow. All right. Uh, yeah. that was nice. You want to dive into, uh, this is a new feature for the show called, uh, well, I don't know if we're going to call it last week's lesson. That's kind of a lame, uh, title. <laughs> it's, it's a da dated material here for you. <laughs> that actually, I kind of enjoy that. It's like a sort of amusing. So last week's lesson. No, um, I have a weekly email lesson that you can sign up for thinking slash demon. It's a little awkward, but thinking at uh, dot com slash demon. There's a, a web page that has a link to join our uh, this newsletter that goes out once a week um, with lessons. And so, Ben, I wanted to talk to you about yeah. last week's lesson. Okay. Uh, and we can maybe make this a regular feature if it <laughs> turns out to be cool. Okay. Um, so the title of my lesson was on reading comprehension. There all must be trues. Yeah. And what I did was I took a trip through the first eight reading comprehension questions from test J. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was all, it was eight questions for the first passage from the June 2007 LSAT, which is mm. freely available everywhere, including LSATdemon.com. Sign up for a free account. You can do this whole test on your own. Uh, <clears throat> but these, these are the eight question stems from the first passage from um, June, 2007. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And all I wanted to do was basically show everybody that in my opinion, anyway, mm -hmm. these are essentially all just must be trues or varieties thereof. Okay. Yep. So let's see if I can get your concurrence on these. Um, okay. number one, yep. which one of the following most accurately expresses the main point of the passage? Is that a must be true? 
Well, I I'm gonna I'm gonna have to disagree on some level. I feel like some wrong answers are narrowly stated answers that are factually true, but not the main point. Yeah, yeah, but under uh, what I mean is the correct uh, okay. answer. Okay. Is a must be true. It's not simply a must be true question. Obviously, Obviously they're also it's asking you for the main point. It's not obvious given what your title says. But is uh, it I'm trying to understand it. Okay. Is it in the family in the broader I'm I'm asking you to consider sure. a different way of okay. thinking about question types, basically, which is like under the umbrella of must be true. Okay. Uh, you would call it top down. Sure. Under under that umbrella, would you say that main point questions? I would are say that. Um, uh, yes, it's a top down question, and I would say the correct answer does have to be true. Okay. Second one says, which one of the following is most analogous to the literary achievements that the author attributes to Dove? Okay. Um, that's definitely top down. Uh, and then huh, and that's what you mean by must be true. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, and this is all flushed out in the actual sure. newsletter. Um, what are the, you sending? Written lesson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is all explained. The details hey, are all be... taken care of. Don't worry, Ben. We got you. No, I. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what that just reminded me of. Uh, uh, I think it was a Seth Rogen movie where there was some like time travel yeah. involved, and uh, it might be the. I think it was American Pickle, and. Um, there was some time travel involved and the way, cause it's a comedy, the way he dealt with explaining all of it, it was sort of like this voiceover, I think, or something like that. And it was like, and then a scientist came in the room and explained the whole thing to everyone's satisfaction. To and then satisfaction. it just goes on with the movie. So it it's like, don't worry about any of that. It was fine. No. Okay. So <clears throat> here's the point that I'm trying to make. Sure. When it says which one of the following is most analogous, mm -hmm. people are like, oh, this is going to be something new and different. Sure. But analogous to what? Analogous to the literary achievements that the author attributes to Dove. Yeah. So <laughs> how would you answer a question like this? Like, What's the first thing you would do? You would go back and figure out what the literary achievements that the author attributed to Dove were. You, you get yes. those perfectly clear in your mind, and then you go find something that matches that. In other words, you're working down from the passage. You're not trying to help the <laughs> yes. passage. You're working from the passage. Take that as a given and then try to find the other thing that is supported by that. I, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. So in my in in my newsletter, I didn't even read the passage, right? I yeah. just only looked at the questions, which is not anything you would ever do in real life. But sure. I, you know, if the author had attributed to Dove a literary achievement of writing a book on a, a book of poetry while um, named after a chocolate bar, yeah. Sorry, well, I was laughing and answer. I was distracted by the fact that this has all been explained to, to everyone's satisfaction. So, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so then the correct answer, if that were what the passage sure. said, right? Mm -hmm. If the passage said, wow, it's amazing that you can write a book of poetry while being named after a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. 
you that's what you're armed with as you head into the answer choices, right? And then what type of answer might we find that is correct if we were looking for something analogous to writing a book of poetry while named after a chocolate bar? Um, sorry, what was named after the chocolate bar? The book of poetry or the author? See Dove, do you see my joke? Dove yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Dove is yeah. a brand of chocolate. Yeah. So apparently Dove had literary achievements. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what I said was, if the passage had said, wow, it's a miracle yeah. that you can do this thing of writing a po a book of poetry while named after a chocolate bar, then what might the correct answer look like? Sure, it might be a similar astonishment to someone... Um, Okay, I'm going to bad examples, but I was thinking of, or I am going to come up with a new one. Uh, maybe it's it's astonishing that you were able to climb Mount Everest, even though your your name is, um, you know, uh, even though you're named after a. Well, I was gonna, I don't know, something that Pizza shows company. incompetence, whatever, right? like short, yeah. Short Wait, what incompetence? Some or, oh I see or something where it's like your name would you know is yeah. seems, the, is distracting yeah the point is doing something in literature yeah I mean I would have expected the correct answer to actually be something kind of closer like writing a play while named after skittles or something like that right but the point is we're looking for oh you were able to do this amazing thing while named after whatever if that's what the passage had said was so special about dove then we would be looking for that same special thing mm -hmm. in a different context that's what analogous means and i see this as a variety of must be true because it comes back to you have to understand what it was that was attributed to dove in the first place when you go find something analogous, it's not something like wildly different. It's something that has that little kernel of, well, here's what it was that was so special about Dove. All right, let's move on to the next one. According to the passage, number three said, according to the passage in the US, there is a widely held view that blank. Is that a must be true? That is a must be true. Yeah, I mean, when it says according to the passage, that means it was said in the passage. So that is clearly top down. Those are the most straightforward ones yeah. on reading comp. Like when, when it says, according to the passage, you better believe that the correct answer is going to be something that was said in the passage. It yeah. must be true. Yeah. Number four said the author's attitude toward the deep rift between poetry and fiction in the U S can most accurately be described as one of blank yeah. discontent or whatever it is, but you're getting that from the passage. Yeah. It's, it's the, the author's attitude, not just you're making it up. It's according to the, it's like the passage had to tell you, yeah. you don't know the, the only inkling you have of the author's attitude is what the damn passage said. Sure. So what did it say in the passage? Like what, how did the author approach this rift? Yeah. Did they think it was a good thing? Did they think it was a bad thing? And so I see this as just a must be true. I mean, we're halfway through these questions, but the thing that I really wanted to teach more than anything else is that I don't really pay much attention to question types on reading comp because reading comp is all about, well, did you understand what the damn passage said or not? Mm -hmm. And we pick, we answer the questions based on the passage Mm -hmm. So what difference is it between the author's attitude and the author's primary purpose? And sure, 
when it asks you for the author's main point, you can't just pick one tiny part of it. You have to try to find an answer that captures the entire main point. Mm -hmm. But still, it's just like, listen, did you understand the passage or did you not understand the passage? Okay, number five, in the passage, the author conjectures that a cause of the deep rift between blah, 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 blah. Uh, what? Who cares about the details? But what do we think about that question? Well, when it says the author, the, in the passage, the author conjectures, that's actually to me, the same as saying according to the passage, because it's just saying in the passage, the author said X. Right. Conjectures is a fancy way of saying says. Mm -hmm. So what did the right? author say? So you're just going back and looking yeah. at the things that the author said. And the most important words that they ever put on a question in reading comp is in the passage or according to the passage, mm -hmm. right? It's all about the passage because how else could we answer these questions except for by referencing the passage? Mm -hmm. So, okay. That one also is a must be true. I'm, I'm, I got it as five for five okay. must be true. Yep. Number so six mm -hmm. in the context of the passage, the author's primary purpose in mentioning blah, blah, blah. So why did the author mention this experience? Mm -hmm. So what was the in point? the context of the passage? Yeah, that's top down. That's most analogous to a reasoning question, I think, in logical reasoning, which I and that I believe as well mm -hmm. in in logical reasoning. If you force You're describing me, exactly. Yeah. If you forced me never to talk about reasoning questions mm -hmm. or method questions mm -hmm. or role questions, if you forced me never to talk about any of those types and I would just neatly put them into must be trues and I wouldn't even think twice about it. Mm -hmm. Like the, they either did this or they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. It's a must be true. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's must be true ish is what I'm saying. Yeah. And we've called this in the past top down, mm -hmm. but what we mean by that is based on the passage. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I agree with that hundred percent. Yep. All right. Number seven, it can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to believe which one of the following. Again, that's obviously based on the passage. It's specifically based on what the author, uh, well, let me clarify this. It's specifically based on when the author made claims that reflected his or her beliefs as opposed to when the author is telling us what other people believe. But you should be very aware of that when you're reading through the passage because the author always attributes those claims to other people if they don't accept them. I want to read that stem one more time. It can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to believe which one of the following. I think there are two phrases there that tend to confuse novices sure. and even very high scoring novices. Let me guess. Um, like if you come to me with 175, but you are missing a few reading comp questions, you're almost always missing that one. Yep. And the reason is it can be inferred. Mm-hmm. And so then you think, oh, well, then it can't be directly stated in the passage. Yeah. But it absolutely can because it can be inferred just means it must be true. That's right. Right. So when we see it can be inferred from the passage, that means it must be true according to the passage yep. that the author would be most likely to believe which one of the following. And there again, people read that as an invitation to speculate. Yep. Oh, I'm smart. 
I can read between the lines. If the author said this, then I'm sure they would also go the next step and say this stronger, different thing. Yeah. And then they miss it. What should have they done instead? What? They just, Should well, they have done? you yeah. can look for something that must be true, but essentially what you're looking for is, I, I find that most of these answers tend to be things that were said in the passage, they're just worded slightly differently. And so, um, someone might yeah, say- Yeah, synonyms are a thing. <laughs> Lawyers are good at words. Yeah. So it's, you're allowed to use, I mean, I, I can't believe how many times people are like, well, I didn't pick that because it said this word. And it's like, yeah, but that word means the exact same thing as this other word, or at least one of the definitions of that word is exactly the same as this word. How do you feel about it now? You know, it, one of the one of the answers has to be right in the minds of the test makers, right? One of the one of the answers has to be perfectly right in the minds of the test makers. So before you settle for some shitty answer that you have some convoluted argument to pick maybe think twice about some other answer that you dismissed, you know, cavalierly because of one word that you didn't like. If we use a different definition of that word, it might perfectly connect to the passage. And that's, that's what they intended. That's what the test makers intended. Anyway, when it says it can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to believe which one of the following, the most important words in that question are from the passage yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to be making shit up it's supposed to be based on the passage so again it's a must be true and then this one i think also would cause people to miss it in a similar way mm. number eight if this passage had been excerpted from a longer text which one of the following predictions about the near future of u.s literature would be most likely to appear in that text yeah can you see people missing this even high it's almost weird because it's like the higher level student you are the more likely you are to miss that question yeah you're going to speculate you could be like oh i anticipate that if this were a part of a larger passage that they would have also addressed this issue that's only logical <laughs> right but it's really right. it's like it's like the person kept writing the passage but for some reason repeated what they already said <laughs> right that's all they're doing. Yeah, it's we need an answer that is firmly rooted in the passage, not in your wild speculations about what you think they would probably say next, but based on what they did say, mm -hmm. one of these answers is justifiable based on that. It's never random speculation on the reading comp. It's, I, I think, you know, if you went into reading comp just expecting that they're all going to be must be trues, I don't think you're going to go very wrong that way. Yeah. I mean, you may see one strength in question, a section, a section, not a passage, a section. Um, one strength in question per set, or I've seen weakened questions in reading comp. Yeah, one or the other. Yep. But in that case, they're going to explicitly ask you, right, which one of the following would most undermine the author's uh, opinion on the literary achievements that the author attributes to Dove. Yeah. Which one following well, if you true, still, by the way. So it's like, which one of the following if true. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that case, now it becomes a bottom up question or not. a must be true question. Was that question nine, but by the, the way, is that why you stopped at eight? <laughs> no, I stopped at eight because that was all of the questions in the first passage uh, yeah. of the official June, 2007 LSAT. And I think that, um, 
you you could do worse than just uh, pretending that they're all going to be must be trues on reading comp, um, unless they explicitly ask you a strengthen or weaken, which they're they're very rare. Um, I think a corollary to this is what the fuck is the point of reading the questions first on reading comp? You've you've seen students do that, right? They want to skim the questions so they know what they're looking for. Then go back to the passage. What would you say about oh, that? Oh, it's just even more painful than logical reasoning. At least with logical reasoning, you only have to hold one question in your head. Not that I'm advocating it by any means, but I I can't imagine holding five, let alone eight questions. That's just that's just an invitation for confusion. I've tried it, by the way. Did I tell you about when I tried it? Because so many people talk about it. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. So my experience, at least with trying it, was. Um, as I was reading the passage, I was so <laughs> focused on trying to answer one of like five questions in my head that when the passage remotely touched on that, like on the first one, it like jumped out at me and I completely lost context of the passage as a whole. It's like, it's like you're, it's like <laughs> yeah. you're looking for something yeah. other than what's right in front of you. It's, it's like inviting yeah. you to, well, not it's be looking present. for the trees. Mm-hmm. It's it's looking for the trees instead of seeing the forest. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And so you're you're see, you're like oh I found a tree that is discussed, but uh, you're taking that out of context. And also, once you get to other like the questions that you didn't read because you know, like this had eight questions, right? Um, good luck remembering eight questions. You don't have to. I mean, I know to. To, to be fair to people who are making this argument, they're not going to ask you to remember the, the eight questions. They're only going to ask you to remember the questions that have specific details. But that that in itself is going to invite you to look at the details, right, as opposed to the big picture. So now you're you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, I think, for the main point questions. And if you can make this method work for you, all the power to you. Um, there's so many different people on this planet. Maybe that will work for one or two of you. But... Uh, I think for the vast majority of people, it's it's a struggle, and it's a path that's um, you're then practicing that you may never be able to attain perfection on. Didn't work for me in you know fifth grade social studies when I had an assignment to read a chapter and then answer the five questions at the back of the chapter. Yeah. Uh, every you know smart ass lazy Nathan Fox in the world decides to just, Oh, I'm going to read those questions and then I'm going to skim the passage and then, or skim the chapter and try to, you know, look for the answers essentially. Hmm. And, um, that was so dumb of me to do it that way. I outsmarted myself because I'm a good enough reader that I could have just carefully read the chapter. It probably would have been somewhat interesting if I would have done it that way. And then the questions would have been a piece of cake because I would have understood the context in which they were asking me all of those questions. And I would have breezed through all five of them and answered them well. You know, instead, you know, I'm just looking for the answer to number one and then I'm looking for the answer to number two. I don't get anything out of the chapter. It's all convoluted in my head and I'm just only looking for these weird specific details. And then my answers are going to be terrible because they're not they have, they're not informed by the actual content of, you know, the actual like context or the main point of that chapter. I mean, there is something to be said about asking a question and then, and then seeing the answer. I mean, in life, right, this happens all the time. If you ask a question, um, I think you're much more likely to find an answer to that question 
now that you've asked it, merely asking it in your head is going to uh, change the way you focus on the world and things will pop out at you. So, but I think what I'm struggling with here and I'm, I'm trying to understand is that when I read those questions before I read the passage, I didn't understand the questions because it's like, what are you talking about? Right. It's like, what do you think about like here? Take these questions, right? The author, the author's attitude toward the deep rift between poetry and fiction in the U S can be most accurately described as, and uh, there's like, okay, I guess there's a deep rift between poetry and fiction. I mean, this question actually provides some context, but some, a lot of these questions, it's like, I I'm struggling to even picture what they're asking because I don't have right. context. And so right. if you could ask a clear question and understand it, maybe I could see that benefiting you, but then that's going to require you to read the passage. And at that point, like you should be done. So yeah, this happens in miniature on logical reasoning. If the question stem had said, well, something like this, you know, like uh, which one of the following most accurately describes the role played in the argument by the author's analogy to the literary achievements that the author attributes to Dove. Yeah. And it's like, what? I, I don't, I don't know because I don't know what the literary achievements were that the author attributed to Dove. And yeah. now you're telling me that the author made some analogy to that, but I don't know. That could have been their conclusion or it could have been evidence or it could have been something that they think is false. I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to answer that question? It's just so in miniature, right? Mm-hmm. It's so ridiculous that people do that on logical reasoning. I think it's, yeah, I think it's even more terrible on reading comp because you, now your mind is clouded by eight of these different questions at once. All right. That was my uh, weekly lesson. Again, you can go to thinkinglset.com slash demon and uh, click the link for newsletter there if you would like to start getting a uh, email lesson from me uh, once a week. All right. Ready to dive into the... Uh, oh, and that's absolutely free. Um, would you ready ready to dive into the mailbag? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'll take this first one. Um, yep. It says, hey, Nathan and Ben, thank you both so much for all your help in the demon as well as on the podcast. I appreciate it more than you will ever know. I have a question regarding admissions and overqualification. To give some background, as well as some praise to the demon, I started with a 155 diagnostic, and after six months of studying brainwashing with Kaplan, that's uh, that's not my words, that's uh, H's words, (laughs) Um, I took the November test and received a 143. Holy smokes, that's quite a drop. I mean, people drop, but... Well, one, it, it, it's a perfect example, though, <laughs> of what Kaplan gets wrong. Yeah. They take H 155 is a very a solid, solid starting, starting score yeah. that we would expect somebody to get into the 170s regularly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But Kaplan immediately is like, oh, don't do any of those things that you did on your diagnostic and naturally got a 155. Yeah. No, no. You need to start reading the question stem first on logical reasoning and having all this convoluted, overly complicated theory. Oh, reading comp. Wait a second. You just read the passage and then accurately answered the questions? No, no. We don't want you doing that. We want you to be highlighting and underlining and diagramming and taking notes and doing all this complicated you know <laughs> bullshit yeah and it it just ruins a naturally talented student like h yeah and and she goes from a 155 down to a 143 after six months it's just a tragedy 
That's crazy. Oh, anyway. Yeah, go um, ahead. So H continues, I was so disappointed in myself and my score, but then I had an amazing friend show me the demon. I took Nathan's advice about not applying this cycle, and four months later, I am now testing in the 167 to 170 range and will be taking the official test again in June. I currently have a 3.8 GPA to pair with this score. I live in Utah and would prefer to stay here if possible. I'm willing to look at other schools out of state as long as I'm going for free. But if offered a full ride to one of the two schools in Utah, BYU, which is ranked 29th, and the University of Utah, which is ranked 43rd, I think I would accept depending on my other offers. My question is... Are those schools differently ranked? (laughs) No. Those don't match the 100% rule, which means they are within the same category of ranking. Um, Yes. I think I would accept, depending on my other offers, my question about overqualification comes from a friend's recent experience. He he applied to both schools in Utah with a 3.5 GPA and with a 179. Wow. Not only was he not given a scholarship, he was denied acceptance to both schools. When he called both schools to ask about his denial, he was basically told that he wasn't accepted since they knew he wouldn't pick their school and didn't want him to use their scholarship offer as leverage for other schools he applied to. Is this something you see occurring commonly? And if there are concerns around overqualification, I have two questions. I I wouldn't say that I see this commonly. I could definitely see schools doing this. Um, It doesn't sound like this friend convinced them that the friend wanted to stay in Utah. Like, I think it happens in myth more than it happens in reality. Yeah. Um, I think people are too worried about that. If you're genuinely interested in going to BYU or the U, I would certainly go ahead and apply to those schools. But I I might, yeah, if your number is like, boy, if H ends up with a 3.8 and a 170 something, then, you know, she's going to be vastly overqualified for those schools. But if you talk to them about your Utah roots or whatever, I mean, they still should give you a full ride. Don't get me wrong. You're still overqualified for that school and you should be willing to walk away. But, you know, if for whatever reason, your friend made it look to them like he wasn't interested or he was just trying to game them. And then they it's weird that they actually told him. Something about that doesn't ring true to me, Ben. Hmm. Well, it says he was basically told. Yeah. So maybe what happened is they were saying, I don't think so. He heard what he wanted (laughs) to hear. And when you retell the story, you're like, well, the gist is this is why they didn't want me. Um, They told me to fuck off because I was overqualified and I was clearly going to game the system. And it's like, well, no, you were overqualified and you were clearly going to game the system. But they didn't tell you that. I don't, I, I don't know. I just, it doesn't seem like a thing that a law school would say. Yeah. All right, well, here are her two questions. One, should I add an addendum or addition onto my application stating why I want to stay in Utah or why this school is the perfect fit for me? Uh, I I don't think that can hurt. Um, I think talking about why you want to stay in Utah is a huge factor in where you go to school. I think it's a fine line, though. I mean, I think you want to make it clear that you... You don't want to declare true love. Yeah, this is true. You want to leave the door open because otherwise they won't offer you a scholarship. Why? I own a house right next to the U and I, I am going to walk to school every day. Or going anywhere <laughs> yeah. else. I don't, I don't, you don't want to do that. 
Right. Okay. Two, if schools can see all of the other schools you have applied to, should I keep my applications to schools around the same level? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't close off opportunities. Um that way they don't believe that I'm applying there just as a throwaway school or to boost my scholarship somewhere else. I'm probably overthinking it, but I have only heard yeah. slight mentions of overqualification on the podcast. I know this is a good problem to have and I wouldn't be here without you guys, but I also want to do what is best for me in my situation. If I can stay here and go to law school for free, that would be the dream. Thank you so much for all you do or your time in advance. Um, Wait. <laughs> Read the PS. PS. I recently bought brought home a golden retriever pup named Cooper. Or Copper? Sorry. I've tried every movie and TV show that dogs are supposed to like, and he just can't get into any of them. But the second I turned on Ben's live class, he didn't take his eyes off the screen the entire time. I will attach some pictures. You have his whole heart, Ben. Whoa. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> dog, then we have fan. two pictures of Copper uh, intently watching Ben's videos in the LSAT demon. It looks what? like you're doing a logic game on one of them. Yeah. Um, oh, is that the hotel trading game? It is Indeed it is. And then, game. yep. And then you, the other one, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but Copper is all in on Ben Olson's well, LSAT like, classes. That's like... Ben Olsen circa 2017 or something. Yep. A lot has changed. Okay, well, cool. Um, I would say write the addendum and then not worry about it. And I would apply to schools that uh, that you're competitive at and the best schools you can get into. I, I wouldn't close those opportunities off yet. I, I would I would reach out to those two schools, though. I mean, I would definitely like know somebody in the admissions department of both of those schools. I would go visit both of those schools. Yeah. Uh, you know, but just j show your genuine interest in actually attending those schools. I have a feeling that your friend didn't do that at all. Yeah. Your friend applied to 30 schools, never visited BYU or University of Utah. And then they just looked at that and said, yeah, for yield protection, we're going to deny you. But I, I just don't think that those yield protection denials happen nearly as often as people worry about. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for writing in. H. Cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, H. And we have uh, permission to share uh, Copper's picture on our social media and stuff. So we don't see Copper's face. We just see the back of his head. <laughs> Anyway, I was like, all right. where is this um, PS going? Uh, but anyways, okay. <laughs> next email. Uh, hi, I have three kids. If we assume I cannot move to other law schools uh, besides regional ones in Northeast Ohio, and I am committed to going to law school, what advice would you give older slash family applicants in this position? GPA 3.6. LSAT, uh, first diagnostic 148, and just started studying with the demon. That's coming to us from L. Uh, broadly, do you have any advice for people with three kids, a little bit older, can't move, but committed to going to law school? Get the best LSAT score you can get and try to get the most money you can from the schools that you're committed to going to. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could see Ben the cognitive dissonance <laughs> in his head because he didn't want to give that advice. He, the advice he really wanted to give was one: you have three kids, don't go to law school. Two, you you really should open up if you are serious about law school. You should open yourself up to going to other places besides just regional schools in Northeast Ohio. Lawyer shit is not for the faint of heart, and you're gonna have to make tough sacrifices. And broadening your range of schools that you apply to, um, you know, <laughs> is one of the best negotiating things you can possibly do. Is just to have more options, yeah. but. Uh, then he resolved all that in his head and decided to give the actual advice, you know, yeah, if you are sure you're going to go to law school and if you are sure you can't move, um, get the very best LSAT score you can because that's going to be the difference between uh, potentially not getting into these schools with your 148 mm -hmm. and you make that a 168, mm -hmm. uh, which we see people do all the time. Yeah. And it doesn't take 10 months, by the way, in most cases. We just had H talking about, you know, crashing with Kaplan and then finally making a uh, solid improvement. But no, we would expect that you would end up in the, I, I think, 160 at a very, at a minimum mm -hmm. with a 148 diagnostic. Yeah. And uh, hopefully 165 or maybe even 170 and uh, get yourself your full ride to one of those regional schools in Northeast Ohio. Okay, next one. Yeah, Ben and Nathan. The information on your show was a major contributing factor to my official 177 last summer. Despite this great score, I had an unfruitful cycle. Whoa. Okay. I decided to withdraw from all my wait lists and reapply next year. I'm Nice. Cool. Power move. Yeah, good. I'm wondering if you have any information on the trends so far this year for LSAT registrations and takers. Last year, the high volumes suggested early that it would be a competitive cycle. Do you know how the numbers so far through 2021 stack up to previous years, specifically 2020? I'll be applying to more safety schools this time no matter what, but I'm still curious what we can all expect in terms of relative competitiveness. Do you want to speculate on that? Do you know anything about the numbers? Well, uh, the reason why I put this on the agenda is because I actually wanted to ask you, Ben, do we have that data? Where would we go if we were going to find that data? I mean, I know that there are LSAC web pages that provide some of that information. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would just Google LSAC data and right away we can see test. One of the Google recommendations is test registrants and test takers. At this point, though, what do we know? I don't know. I'm going to take a look. Um, I, you know, I can randomly speculate while Ben looks it up. Yeah. That regression to the mean is one of life's constants. We just had one of the biggest, most competitive cycles ever. I would anticipate, you know, it's it's not that surprising. You're not the only one who said they had a unfruitful cycle mm -hmm. this time around, mm -hmm. um, especially if you applied late or maybe you're a lower GPA splitter. Um, they had so many applicants this cycle, so many high quality applicants this cycle due to 
COVID and specifically deferrals from the previous year of COVID that made this last application, like trying to start law school in 2021, you're in the most competitive law school admission cycle ever. So um, I would certainly speculate that we will see some regression to the mean and next year will probably be better. That doesn't, I don't have to be right about that, but um, that would be a good wager normally to make. Anyway, what do you see on the on the data? Okay, so let's talk about first-time test takers first. Um, in the 2019 to 2020 cycle, so keep in mind that's going from June 2019 to May 2020. So uh, this is the tail end of the cycle yeah. is where COVID hit. Um, we had 71,000, actually, just to say 72,000 first-time test takers. Okay. Yeah. And then in the next cycle, which goes from June of 2020 to, well, right now to essentially now, that's April 2021, um, we have 74,000 first time test takers. And the cycle is not done yet. So I would say that it looks like there's more first time test takers this cycle than last cycle. And I think that that actually doesn't answer Anonymous's question if I'm, well, wait, no, maybe, maybe it does. No, wait, official 177 last summer though, LSAC is still reporting that in this cycle. Last summer. Oh no, he, because Anonymous has to mean last, the previous last summer has to mean 2019, right? Okay. Wait. Yeah. No. <laughs> Let's go back to the question. <laughs> I'm really getting confused by the the time and the the weird reset that LSAC does in either May 31st or sometime later. We're still unsure. Um, but the the high so volumes. That, well, he says last year the high volumes suggested early that it would be a competitive cycle. But the high yeah. So he's specifically yeah. asking about people who are taking the LSAT this spring or this summer with the intention of applying this fall. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is LSAC is not going to divide the data the way we would divide the data, yeah. right? Because yeah. we don't think that taking the test in February is a sensible thing to do for people who want to start law school in the same year. But LSAC counts those people in that cycle. The the uh, as if they were going to go to law school that year. Yeah. Right. So I'm not sure we actually have that data yet. And that's what Anonymous is asking for is like so far in 2021. Well, so far in 2021, LSAC lumps that in with people who were taking the test in summer of 2020. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the people who, okay, so let's take a look at the January and February LSATs this year compared to 2020. So 2021 versus Okay, yeah, there we go. We can do that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, the numbers are up, at least for, I'm just focusing on first-time test takers right now. They are up substantially. So we had 11 plus 7. So you look at 18,000 people, or at least, sorry, 18,000 first-time test takers when you add together January and February of this year. Last year, we had about 11,000. So a year ago, right before COVID, there were about 11,000 people who took the January and the February LSAT. There was no April LSAT. Um, and this year, we're at 18,000. Or, yeah, 18, right? Yeah, 18. 
So numbers were up for 2021, 2021, January and February. Um, which might indicate a more competitive cycle coming up. Yeah, it's possible. Although I don't many know of, those how many of those people might have applied late yeah. in the previous cycle. Did they apply late in the previous also, cycle? Also, mm-hmm. the thing for people who apply in September of 2021, you're not going to be competing with all of those people who deferred during, you know, in who were going to start law school in 2020, who deferred at the top schools who are starting this fall. So that's one thing that Anonymous doesn't have to worry about at all is all of those COVID deferrals. Wait, why not? All those COVID deferrals. What? Because all those COVID deferrals are starting law school this fall, which is not what Anonymous is talking about. Mm. Anonymous is talking about applying this fall for for next fall. Yeah, they're applying. You guys are, you're applying when they're starting. So they're out of the question. Right. So you have to look at two different things. You have to look not just at how many first time test takers, but you also have to look at, um, you have to think about those COVID deferrals, which I think is a huge part of what caused this nasty admission cycle Yeah, is that, you know, half the people who were admitted to Harvard were like, Nope, I'll take that deferral. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many it actually was. I'm speculating. Sure. So I, it's the big question here is of these 18,000 people who took it at the beginning of this year, are they turning around and applying immediately? Are these like late, you know, late applicants or are they early applicants and they're a <laughs> yeah. mix of both and we don't know. Right. So, yeah. By the way, I, I don't know what to make of this test takers number. Cause this includes repeat test takers. So that doesn't actually tell us the number of bodies, right? It just tells us how many people are retaking the test. So do you know how to interpret <laughs> that data? No, I do not. It is way up, though, you know, by the way. So that's interesting. Yeah. You know, the thing is it's all just stats debating anyway. Right. Like at the end of the day yeah, you, about all those other people. Yeah. You, you have to take the LSAT, get the best possible score you can get. Your GPA is not changing. You apply to as many schools as you can, and then you deal with the offers in hand and make decisions based on that information. What else can you do? Yeah. It didn't work out for you last cycle. Well, it was a super competitive cycle. Maybe this next cycle will also be super competitive and it won't work out for you this cycle either. I doubt that's going to be the case. But if it does, well, then you do what you can do, which is just wait another cycle, probably. Yeah. I know that sounds like terrible news, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, ask John Yin if that's terrible advice. He will tell you clearly that it's not. Anyway. um, Cool. Here's the next one. It says, hi, guys. I am still getting my undergrad degree in philosophy from Berkeley. Fall of 2020, I was having a difficult time with the online learning format. And elected to take classes pass no pass, which I realize now may have been a bad decision. I'm not sure if you are familiar with the policy many universities have instituted at the start of the pandemic, but they began allowing students to take classes pass no pass for full credit toward degrees. The law advisor at my school told me that law schools will likely look at them as C's. But I don't know how accurate that is. Since all of this is so new with the pandemic, Ben, what's your gut tell you about how accurate that is? Law schools will likely look at them as C's. I feel like the law schools are just going to take whatever LSAC GPA they're given. Exactly. It's not your law advisor doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. 
the schools have nothing to do with it. The schools don't get to make their own determination how they want to look at those pass, no pass grades. LSAC is going to determine what they do with those pass, no pass grades. And so the question you should really be asking and actually what your law advisor should be educated on is (laughs) law school. I can't believe they're doing law advising without like saying, well, there is a thing called an LSAC GPA and the law school admission council is going to calculate your GPA for you. And so the real issue is how does LSAC deal with pass, no pass. Um, anyway, let's see. I don't know how much of this This is kind of some extra stuff in here. I decided this spring I would buckle down and work harder to get back on the straight a train to make up for the pass, no pass grades, regardless of the online format. That sounds like a very good decision. You're can, you know, you're worrying about things you can actually control, which are your future grades. Uh, no excuses, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I suffered a traumatic assault in January and missed a lot of school. Wow. That sucks. Um, It is an excuse, though. I was so far behind that I've been playing catch up ever since. It looks like I'm going to have B's down the line this semester, which is going to significantly lower my GPA. God, you should have dropped out. You should have you should have taken time off of school. It's unfortunate, but you should have. The fact that you kept going to school and getting B's. I don't think you get to just say, you know, because like if you write an addendum and say, well, I had this traumatic assault and that's what caused me to get B's. I don't think that's going to sway admissions committees very much because they're like, if it was that bad of an assault, you should have been not in school. We have to work with the data we have, which are a whole bunch of B's. It's a bummer, but I just, (laughs) you know, you. You need to put A's on your report card. I don't, that's all I, or on your transcript. I think I will have around a 3.3 or a 3.4 with one semester left of undergrad. I feel that if next semester I finish with strong straight A's and strong recommendations from my professors, I might be able to overcome the semester of pass, no passes and B's. Um, it ain't about what you feel. Nobody cares what you feel. The law schools are, (laughs) they're making the decisions largely based on the numbers. You can write addendums, but they don't report what's on your addendum. They report what's on your transcript and they report what LSAC says your GPA is. Well, I mean, I would still strive to get those A's and. Absolutely. Yes. Control the things you can actually control, which are A's. Um, I would think twice about, you know, even writing this addendum because it, it just always sounds like too many excuses. I, 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 I don't, you know, like, well, okay. I feel like an assault is an understandable reason to have a bad semester and one that doesn't mean I will be a problem in the future. How much should I divulge about what happened with the assault and is any of it appropriate on my application? What do you think, Ben? Well, here's the problem. So if you, this is what I'm struggling with. I don't have an immediate answer. If you're going to say in an addendum, Hey, I had a, I suffered a traumatic assault and you leave it at that, right? If you're going to disclose this, I wouldn't disclose any more than that. Um, now you can't talk about the online format, which I wouldn't even talk about anyways. So this is the only thing you're going to be able to wipe away. It's one semester. Yeah, You certainly don't want to talk about, 
oh, COVID. So, and I, oh, I started struggling because of my, because I struggled with the online format. And then I went pass, no pass, but I didn't know that they were, that the LSAC was going to calculate yeah. Like you can't go into any of that bullshit. Cause it just sounds like excuse after excuse after excuse, especially once you then get to the assault. So I agree, Ben, you're just going to say the assault. Yeah. So look what I would do. And it sounds like this actually might be possible for you because you have a three, a 3.82, you have a bad semester. Uh, so I'm confident that you can get, high grades again now that you've kind of gotten things together and if you can because you've done it before so if you do that but it's going back down though wait what <laughs> i mean well he just said i think i will have around a 3.3 or a 3.4 with one semester left of undergrad so right now 3.82 but this semester, he's getting B's all the way down the line, which is going to lower his GPA all the way down to a 3.3, 3.4. Well, I guess all I'm saying. So he's trying to explain this yeah. drop. Now, and I guess, so he does have the evidence like, hey, my GPA was 3.82 before this semester in which I incurred this traumatic assault. I think, yeah. So, and, and, and if if you finish well on the last semester, what you can do is figure out your GPA for all of them, exclude this one semester. Right. Say I had a traumatic assault. My, if you take out that semester, this is my GPA and just leave it at that. Uh, I feel like any more explanation just opens more questions and people overshare way too often. Yep. And, you know, they, they've got a stack of people oversharing. And I, don't, I just don't think you want to join that club. So, sure, lawyers like evidence say I had this incident without this one semester. Here's my GPA and focus on other aspects of your candidacy. Right. You can't draw. You can't just draw so much attention to this assault. Yeah. Because that's not a reason to admit you to law school. Um, anyway, I would like to go to a top 14 school. I took my first time to practice LSAT on Sunday and scored a 160 after starting with Demon Free a couple days before. I, th I think since my first practice test was 160 with almost no studying, I can get into the 170s relatively easily. Yeah, many people make that leap. Um, it also might require some hard work. So is a top 14 with good offers, a viable opportunity. If my GPA, blah, blah, blah. You got to go look at the scholarship estimator, uh, lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. You can put in any LSAT and any GPA you want and you can play with it. And that will do all of the speculation for us. Um, that uses ABA 509 data. To, it's as close as we can get to predicting what your scholarships might be. So we're not going to speculate on that. Just lsatdemon.com slash scholarships then asks if for some reason, if pass, no pass grades are not a problem, should I take any classes pass, no pass this semester to keep my GPA higher and just focus on finishing with straight A's next semester? You're all, so you're already struggling getting B's. Yeah. I might take them pass, no pass in that case. I guess. It I don't think LSAC is just converting all those into C's. I, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that's what LSAC does. Maybe ask LSAC what they do with them or look online. They have a bunch of exactly. rules laid out and then email us an update. We'd love to know. Yeah, Google this stuff and you, you're going to have to do some research, but you, you can find this information, including if you, might, if you have to call them, you can call them. But um, 
it's it's all going to be on their website. Uh, I mean, get A's though, <laughs> like just get A's as many of them as you can. That's the best thing you can do, right? Get the best LSAT you can get the, get as many A's as you can. That's the only thing you can do. Yep. It's like, okay. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, uh, thank you, Mason. Yeah. yeah. And I, boy, I, that's a bummer, but this is UC Berkeley and the, the law advisor doesn't seem to have really any idea what they're talking about. Hmm. I know there are a variety of different uh, pre-law advisors on campus at Berkeley. Uh, you might want to go try a different department, try somebody, <laughs> try somebody different because they're just, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Next one. Hi, Ben, Nathan, or Demon Team. So I want to apply for fall of 2022, which means I should be submitting my applications right at the start of September 2021. Correct. Yeah. So in a few months from now. But I'm not very yep. familiar with the actual applications themselves, and my online research has led me nowhere. I've been drafting my personal statement, but I don't know what else will be required, like school-specific essays, and I want to be ready to submit ASAP. I was wondering if someone could explain when the applications actually open. If they open right in September, how can I prepare myself to submit ASAP? Aubrey. I would get the applications from last year from the schools that you're interested in. They're going to open up their applications for the next cycle sometime probably in September. I know some schools open it up on September 1st. Other schools might open it later in September. But by the end of September, every law school should have their application open. If you want to see what those applications looked like last year, you should reach out to those schools and say, hey, can I see your prompts? I, I want to start working on my essays. Can I see your prompts for last year? Yeah, search um, for them. If you can't find them, legitimately can't find them, that's a great opportunity to ask for help. If they're obviously on their website, then you shouldn't be asking them. But, true. Um, this is, a, though, I mean, if they're not there, then this is a great opportunity a for great you to make a connection with yep. the... Um, with those folks there that might remember you down the road. If you're professional and polite and seem like you've got your shit together, um, they should be able to help you. They also probably will try to get you to apply this cycle. Um, right. They're going to be like, well, Hey, we're still accepting applications. You know, you can take the April LSAT and still apply this, this cycle. <laughs> uh, but those are just desperate are, are, schools. Yeah. Are, um, are respectable schools doing that? No, they're not. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so that's, yeah. yep. Thanks, Aubrey. Uh, hello, Ben and Nathan. I have a question that I have been debating for quite some time and one that I need to make within the next two weeks. Do you? Uh, the question is, if I should take the LSAT again in June, August, or both. I took the LSAT in November and scored a 163 and took it again in April, and I am not sure if I hit my goal score of 170. Now I need to decide if I should retake the test in June, August, or both. Well, hey, your April scores are coming out like what today, tomorrow, something like that. Um, and that is before you need to make the go, no go decision on June. Hmm. But actually the show is going to air after the registration deadline for June. Anyway. Um, I don't know if we can help you. <laughs> We're like too late on yeah, this email. Here's, um, here's advice for anyone who's in, universal yeah, advice. If you're, yeah. if you're debating, sign up. We're talking about, $200 yeah. here, that sucks. I'm sorry if that's a lot of money for your budget, but you're also risking tens of thousands. This next bit pisses me off. I know you both advise to take the test as many times as possible. Wait, no, we don't. 
we recommend that you get the best LSAT score you can and you're allowed up to five attempts at it in two years. And it's not just take it as many times as possible. It's keep taking it until you get the best score you can. That's our advice. Anyway, I have heard conflicting answers around this topic. My law school advisor and several law school admissions counselors that I have spoken to seem to say that LSAT takers should take the test once or twice at most. In a recent forum, one admission counselor said, once you take it more than twice, we begin to raise a few eyebrows. They might, but what they don't realize is that they don't know the, the, their own selves. When they see a higher score, they're going to jump at that immediately, completely unaware of the fact that they just ignored their previous suspicions. It's fucking ridiculous, Ben. I don't understand why they don't have any kind of self-awareness. But, you know, what I would ask them is, well, okay, so let's get specific. Would you prefer someone who took it twice and got 160 and 161, or would you prefer someone who took it three times and got 160, 161, 168? Yeah, you know what their problem is? <laughs> is they're constantly comparing the the person who got 170 after taking it once or twice to the person who got 170 after taking it four times or five, five times. times. Yeah, And they're like, well, I, yeah. I kind of like the person who got it twice better and it's like yeah but that's not what we're talking about here because you'd actually be comparing the 170 <laughs> who took it twice to someone who got a 161 because they only took it twice and you wouldn't even consider that yeah. person at all yeah if all else were equal then yeah they would prefer someone who took it fewer times but all else is not equal because you're going to take it again and you're going to score higher and if you score five points higher, like that's the difference between their 75th percentile and their 25th percentile LSAT. Yeah. So they're full of shit. They're just, they're just, they're either stupid or they're lying or they're just, yeah, I, I think they're just, I, I, I think they're stupid. <laughs> I think they just, they're sort of reflexively going, oh yeah, you know, we don't want people to be gaming it. We don't want people to be taking it too many times. Well, I think they're Meanwhile, honestly thinking about Carl, those two people. They're looking at the people who took it five times and they're looking at the people who took it twice and they both have 170 and they say, ah, I like the person who took it twice better. But they just <laughs> right. don't understand that that's not the apples, and, that's not who we're comparing. That's not what we're comparing. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you keep taking it and you don't score higher, then yeah, that's probably, that's not a, a, a feather in your cap, right? <laughs> yeah, There's we, still we all people. they're going to care about is your highest score. Yeah. You know, it's like, but but what the practical decision that most people are making is my practice tests are higher. My official tests are lower. Yeah, I've taken it twice or three times. And yeah, taking it a third or fourth time might raise a few eyebrows. But they won't even be looking at you if you don't take it again and get that higher score. Yeah. So, ugh. Anyway, I need to take the test uh, at least once more to get the 170 goal score higher than my 163 november score. what this is a mess i picked the 170 for a few reasons i.e <laughs> jesus christ you've got parentheses and you've got an i.e inside the parentheses what are you even talking about 
what should I do if I am not averaging a test score of around 170 in June? Dude, you've got a high right now of 163. I don't give a shit what your goal score is. Are your practice tests higher than 163? That's your question. Yep. If you're consistently scoring 167, then you should take it. All right, 167 is dramatically better than 163. Yep. You got to let go of this goal score. I, that's that's dumb. Yeah, and you have reasons for your 170. Everyone could have reasons for why they want a 170. <laughs> Uh, nobody cares. Yeah. We scoreboard is the only thing that matters and taking it in June and August will get, will give you two chances at your best score instead of one chance at your best score. So if you're applying this fall, then yeah, I would take June and I would take August. Anything to add to that one? Nope. I'm not, I'm not angry at you F. Thank you for writing in. I'm not angry at you at all. I'm agitated about the, just these law school admissions people just giving people advice that's not helpful. I mean, it's just not, it's just not true. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, good luck. Um, I guess here. Carl, our LSAT teacher, Carl, is going to Yale this yeah. fall. He took the LSAT five times. That's like, I'll rest my case on that. Yeah. Let me, so I don't love this, this goal that you have F, but here's this. If you're not scoring by to 170 by, what is it? You said um, August, right? Um, if your practice test scores are not up there and you want them to get up there and you're willing to postpone law school and you're willing to keep studying, then keep studying. Don't. Take the test. Wait till your scores get up there. I, I'm fine with that if you're willing to keep working on it. But you really have to go until you're done pursuing the LSAT. That's Yeah, F said earlier, probably won't do it again in October because it's too late in the cycle. But if you really need that 170 to get yourself the scholarship that you want, maybe October is the best test for you and maybe you should push the entire thing down the road another cycle yeah cool all right next one hi ben and nathan i'm a big fan of the show before i discovered it i had a 163 on my first lsat wow wait official or diagnosis sound like official don't know i found your podcast listened to every episode and ended up scoring a 175 in june of last year so i just wanted to say thank you for all you do but I, because I don't think I would even have these offers if it wasn't for your show. Sweet. I'm writing because I wanted to see how you would apply your advice of don't pay to, for law school to this situation. Okay, so here's <laughs> Al's situation. People, I can already see it coming. People asking for exceptions, yeah. right? This is going to be a request for an exception from the rule, don't pay yeah, for law school. Yeah. But, 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 so. but, but in this case, yeah. But what about me, though? I'm special, though. The law schools love to tell you that. Yeah, you're special. Yeah. That's why they're going to charge you tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to their schools because how special you are. Yeah, g give someone <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars and then ask um, them for an opinion that they have of you. It will always be positive. 
(laughs) I have full tuition, conditional offers to Pepperdine and Loyola, LA, and uh, Louisiana, sorry, and Southwestern. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. I'm pretty sure that's Loyola, Marymount, Loyola, and Los Los Angeles. Angeles, And Southwestern. But I also have offers from USC and UCLA where my tuition cost with the non-conditional scholarships would be about 18000 a year. <laughs> okay. So is there a debate here? Uh, USC and UCLA are fine law schools, but Pepperdine and Loyola and Southwestern create real-life lawyers in Los Angeles every day. It depends on what kind of a lawyer you want to be for sure. Like if you're dead set on going to big law, Mm. that's the only place where I would even consider taking one of these, one of these other schools. These aren't the kinds of schools where you go, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to the Supreme court of the United States. Probably not. I, so it's, I don't, I don't think it's life changing. I just don't think there's a life changing difference between, you know, Pepperdine and USC. Okay. I did get offers from other schools and some acceptances into T14s with little to no scholarships offered, but these are my best offers. And I plan to stay in LA because my husband has a well-paying job here and will be covering our rent and expenses while I'm in school. Also, my family lives in the San Gabriel Valley and I plan to stay in the LA LA area after school. In which case, any of these regional schools will give you all kinds of LA connections. I was hoping to use my full tuition offers to negotiate with UCLA, USC, but that didn't work out since those offers weren't from a com- from comparable schools. I know you say don't pay for law school, but in this situation, do you think UCLA, USC <laughs> are worth paying for $18,000 per year? Or am I better off not paying for law school and going to Pepperdine Loyola? My gut is telling me to take the full tuition offer at Loyola to save money, but everyone else I know is telling me to go to UCLA, USC. Also, Loyola says they won't remove the conditions of the scholarship, which are that you must be in the top 75% of the class, which is less worrying than some other school's conditions. I would love to hear your thoughts. Should I not pay for law school or should I just somewhat pay for law school? Thank you for everything. <laughs> Without you and your show, I doubt I'd have any offers to consider. Um, I do. Ben, if I asked you to pay me $18,000 a year for services, like I'm going to teach you something. Okay, Ben. And you have to pay me $18,000 a year for three years. Are you slightly paying me for that or are you fucking paying me? I'm not paying you that. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're going to say what? I know I do not. I could Google it. I could go on YouTube. I don't need your magical information for $18,000 a year. It's just incredible that people are. Look at what. Look at what Al just did. Al just. Just said that. $18,000 $18,000 a year is slightly paying for law school. Al, you're going to graduate with a hundred thousand dollars probably of debt. 
Yeah, ima- yeah. To to take your analogy a little <laughs> bit further, imagine that. Um, yeah, imagine that Masterclass or something like that was like, hey, we're offering <laughs> this great program. It's eighteen grand a year for the next three years. You do have to commit. And by the way, if you don't do well, these are not. Wait, this is. Oh, it's a non-conditional scholarship. <laughs> no, no, no. It's Loyola. Lo- no, because Al has the full ride to Lo- to Loyola. And by the way, let's talk about that. 75% of the class. You have to be in the top 75% to keep your Loyola scholarship. Mm-hmm. Al, if you can't keep that scholarship, you should drop out of law yeah. school. Like you're on, you're there on a full ride. Yep. If you're at Loyola on a full ride and you can't finish in the top 75%, it ain't going well for you and you should quit. Which is fine. That's fine. It didn't work out. It doesn't work out for like half of the people who go to law school. So that's fine. But I I would pretty much, I'm not going to guarantee, but I would be shocked if you lose that scholarship. And if you do lose it, then it means you weren't cut out for this and that's fine. Yeah. And you would have done even worse at USC and UCLA. Oh my God. That's not a factor. So that's out. So the only factor is the $18,000 because then these are essentially non-conditional scholarships that you're comparing essentially. Yes. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Right. So, would you pay eighteen thousand dollars for the next three years to go to some amazing master class? N- no. Really, eighteen grand. <laughs> but Ben, what if the what if the actual what if the cost of the master class was sixty grand per year? Oh yeah. But they're only going to charge you eighteen thousand because you're special. Well, there's a, there's a, that's what these fuckers are yeah. doing that's the game you're playing i i would go for free i would go for free as well i would visit pepperdine i would visit loyola i would visit southwestern i would talk to people who went to each of those schools um i'm i can connect you to some of those people reach out to me on linkedin try to find some connections you know not people that were fed to you by the school but um people that that you know you meet other other ways find out as much as you can about those schools i cannot imagine it being worth it to pay eighteen thousand dollars a year for ucla and usc these regional schools will do just fine and by the way you'll probably kick ass at loyola You're not going to kick ass at UCLA. I mean, you might. Odds are you won't. But odds are you will kick ass at Loyola. And kicking ass at Loyola, they've been in Los Angeles for forever. (laughs) They're super connected. They can give you all kinds of opportunities in LA. You know, they're probably... And by the way, if you finish at the very top, you, you can still go to elite big law practice. I mean, I... I bring this up frequently, but I know somebody who finished number one in his class at Southwestern and started making $200,000 a year right out of law school. So it is possible to get even those high paying big law jobs if you really kill it at these schools. But if you don't kill it at these schools, you're still going to qualify to take the bar. They're still going to connect you to jobs in Southern California and you just don't have a mountain of debt to overcome if it doesn't work out for whatever reason. Cool. Good luck. Yeah. Notice, notice that Al and husband are paying rent 
didn't didn't say mortgage said rent and $18,000 a year goes an awful long way toward someday potentially buying a house you know i mean or i should say that the other way around you know borrowing $18,000 a year right now works in the other negative way toward eventually hopefully buying a house for you and your family if that's something you want to do not that I'm judgmental about that in any way. I just, I just, young people taking on debt is just not a good idea. Yeah. There we go. There we go. You can always email us at help at thinkingelsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. So that was episode 296 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>